0: We're going to open by reading the first seven verses, and then we'll cover the rest as we go. Genesis 3. Moses writes, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Father, as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit through your divine word. Father, we pray that our eyes will be open, that we will, that we will see Jesus, that we will be captivated by him this morning. Yes. And we pray that, that that through this act of preaching this act of hearing that you would be glorified. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Now, I don't know if there's an official interpretation to this classic nursery rhyme, one that you probably remember from your childhood. But I think, it's impo- I think that it's possible to see this nursery rhyme, to see Humpty Dumpty as a parable of Genesis 1 through 3. In the beginning at creation, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. All is well and good. One might even say, very good. But then Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. In fragile egg that he was, the consequences were devastating. No amount of human effort, whether of the king's horses or of the king's men, has been able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. This is a a tragic story that ends in despair. But it's not just in nursery rhymes that we come across these tragic stories. In fact, we don't have to look long and hard to see the tragic stories that surround us. Just one news cycle should be enough to convince any of us. Whether it be of another school of another shooting, just think of the one that happened on this past week at the newsroom in Annapolis. Whether it be news of another school shooting, perhaps a natural disaster. Men and leaders in high positions abusing their power. Stories of greedy CEOs of rigid social, class, and racial divisions that surround us. Or even the existence of things like humans trafficking. As we're faced with things like this, we're, just, we're left thinking that this isn't the way things are supposed to be. We're, we're surrounded by tragic stories. But it's not just, it's not just something that's out there. So I think if we're honest with ourselves, as, as we look at our own lives, we can see that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. We see it in our relationship struggles, as friends and family members fail us and wrong us, in our circumstances, just consider work is, is either too demanding or it's not satisfying. Perhaps it's it struggles with money as it seems that there's, there's never enough. Maybe for you, you're just aware of particular family struggles right now. Raising kids is exhausting. It takes everything that you have. Nurturing a marriage is anything but what you expected it would be when you said, I do. Or maybe you feel it in just the sinful patterns in your own life, the sinful patterns that you're aware of that you just can't seem to break. And we see the tragic stories of the fall in the pain and the suffering that we experience. Whether it's in that that fear diagnosis we receive or it's as we're hoping and praying that there is a diagnosis. What is it for you that has you asking, what's happened? Why is everything so bent and broken? Why am I? Why am I so bent and broken? Church, there's no denying that we live in in a confusing and a painful world. And we get confused about ourselves. We get confused about our, our situations, our circumstances. We just don't know why is this happening. Why hasn't this stopped? But thankfully, we're not left without an answer. As we come to Genesis 3, we can make sense of it all. It doesn't answer every question that we might have. But Genesis 3 gives us three categories for us to think in to help us make sense of our lives, to help us make sense of the broken world that we live in. This morning, as we look at Genesis 3, we're going to see these three categories. First, we see, as we we attempt to understand the realities all around us, we first see mankind's grievous fall in verses 1 through 7, as we read this morning. As the passage opens, we're introduced to a new character in God's story, Moses writes, "Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent whom, whom the New Testament identifies as Satan, he opens his mouth and he speaks. He says, "Did God actually say, "You shall not eat of the tree of any tree in the garden." And with these words, the first question ever asked. The serpent, Satan, issues a direct attack on God and his people as he questions God's word and as he questions God's goodness. You see what he's doing here? He asks just an absurd question. Did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? If they didn't eat of any tree in the garden, they'd die. Certainly, God didn't say that. Satan knew that. But what he wanted to do was to, to place a little whisper in Eve's ear to get her thinking that God's commands are burdensome. God, God doesn't want what's best for me. And with this question, we see that he, he accomplishes his goal of getting Adam and Eve to question God's word and his goodness towards them. This is, this is so clear in Eve's reply in verses two and three. You hear this again. The, uh, Eve responds in verse two, but the woman said to the serpent, she says, we may eat of the fruit of the tree, uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Perhaps without even noticing it, Eve has distorted God's word as she minimizes his provision to them. In Genesis 2.16, God tells Adam and Eve that they may freely eat. God's arms are open. Gift is in front of them. They may freely eat of any tree in the garden. And here she says, questioning God's word questioning his goodness. We we may eat. We we may eat of the trees. This might not seem like a big deal to you. We may freely eat. We may eat. But this isn't the only place that she minimizes God's word. Because in the very same sentence we see that she minimizes God's punishment as well. In verse three she says, you know, God just said lest you die when in Genesis 2.17, God clearly said that you will surely die. Now, these aren't outright contradictions, but these subtle diminishments of God's provision and punishment have set up what we see next. Having distorted God's word with his first question, the serpent goes in for the kill as he directly denies God's word. In verse 4, he, he simply utters, you will not die. He, he's saying that what God has told you just isn't true. In fact, his command, his threat, it's really just an attempt to keep you from becoming like him. Look at verse 5. He, he gives this reason. He's not gonna, you're not going to die. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open." And you will be like God. Can you hear the implications? Satan is just tempting Adam and Eve, telling them that God doesn't have your best in mind. In, in, in fact, he's willfully withholding good things from you. You ever find yourself tempted to think that? You're current circumstances, whether in family life, whether in the, the desires, the things that you want, the things you, you don't have, do you ever just sit and question, does God really want what's best for me? Does God really have my best interest in mind? Or is he just, just withholding something from me? He's, he's not a good God. He is he's withholding good things from me. Satan's convincing Adam and Eve that God doesn't really want what's best for them. And so he says, go ahead, take the fruit, take the fruit, and you can have your best life now because that is found apart from God. It's found apart from his word. And we all know what happens next, right? They believe the lie, they're completely convinced that the God who created them and gave them everything as gift was withholding something good from them. And so they disobey God's word, thinking not only is there going to be no consequences, but things are actually going to be better for them. They can disobey God with no consequences, and things are actually going to be better. They're going to become like God. They will be autonomous, responsible to no one but themselves. In verse 6, we're told that, that Eve takes the fruit. She delights in the fruit. She desires the fruit. And finally, she takes and eats the fruit together with Adam, who was with her. And in that instant, in that moment, everything changes like a light switch being flipped on. Verse 7 tells us that their eyes are open and they realize that Satan has lured them to disobey God's word with half-truths and empty promises. Are you familiar with these? Familiar with these empty promises that Satan dangles in front of us? Has God actually said? Does God really have your best interest in mind? Because I really think that, that this thing over here, that that's what's really gonna be good for you. Or that thing over there, that's what's gonna be good for you. And we so easily believe the lie. We so easily just believe the empty promises. What Adam and Eve thought would bring slavery, would bring freedom, brought them slavery. What they hoped would bring ultimate satisfaction brought them shame. And the scene closes with the man and the woman feebly attempting to cover themselves, to cover their shame with fig leaves. In just a moment, we're going to look at the effects of the fall. But before we move on, I want to ask you, where where might you be tempted to question God's word today? What area of your life has you wondering whether God really knows best? And I ask this because Satan's tactics haven't changed. He has the same MO today that he had in the garden. He comes up to each one of us and whispers in our ears, did God actually say? No, 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 no. Did, did God actually say? say. Satan wants us to believe that God's word is burdensome, that it's archaic, that it's oppressive. Maybe you're here and you're a youth and you just, you look at some of the things that God's word says and you just says, that's no fun. There's, there's just no fun there. That's what Satan wants us to think. That's what Satan wants us to question. Because as we begin to question his word, Satan knows that we'll inevitably question his character. We'll question his goodness. All of our sin starts with doubt. We think to ourselves, God's commands aren't really for my good. He, He just doesn't want me to be happy. He doesn't want me to be who I really am. If you're here this morning, you can you can relate with that battle going on in your heart. Just caution you: let let the story of Adam and Eve, let Genesis three serve as a yellow caution sign for you, especially when, especially when it seems like when it seems like things will be so much better for you if you just disobey God's word, because as we see so clearly in Genesis three. The temptation to disobey God's word, the desire to want to become our own God, to think that we know better, it's simply a mirage. It seems real and alluring at the time, perhaps like a, like a well of water to a, to a parched desert traveler. But it ends up being just, a, just an image of our own desires that leaves us even more thirsty, so rather than doubt or disregard God's word believe that God is for you and from that and from that let us respond with obedience because Adam and Eve thought that by eating the fruit they could become like God but the reality is is that it left them less than human humpty dumpty had a great fall As we look at the world around us, we we, we can make sense of the world around us only by, by looking at this story. It's this story that helps us make sense of the world because it's this story that shows us what the real problem is. The real problem was disobeying God's good commands. As the story continues, we see sin's painful but just consequences. What's interesting about these consequences, about these, these punishments, or at least I found it interesting, is that, that they're directly related to something we've, we've already seen in Genesis. As you might remember, back in, in May, when we looked at Genesis 1, when we looked at what it means to be created in the image of God, as we looked at the text, we saw that, that at a minimum, it meant that we were created for a relationship with God, for relationships with others. And for a relationship with creation. And here in Genesis 3, as we look at the tragic and the painful consequences of the fall, we see that they're aimed at each of these relationships. Which is why earlier I said that Adam and Eve became less than human. Because, because the, the fall of the image, because in the fall, the image of God was distorted in them, it was distorted in all of us. It leaves us less than we were created to be. Let's look at each of these separations in turn. The first consequence of the fall is that it brought separation from God. Look with me at the heartbreaking experience that we see unfold shortly after they eat from the tree. In verse eight, we read, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among them, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself when the Lord appeared in the garden to enjoy fellowship, to enjoy communion with Adam and Eve, the response of this this newly fallen couple is is heartbreaking. Rather than, than joyfully running out to their creator, drawing near to him as they were created to do, they now hide. They hide ashamed of who they are And what they've become. The the very purpose for which God created Adam and Eve. To be in relationship with God. To enjoy communion with him. Has been ruined. Sin broke the relationship of intimacy that they had previously shared. As we read in verse 9. We see what the, the direct result was. We see that it was fear. It was fear that moved them to run and hide. Because of their shame and their guilt, Adam and Eve now perceive their loving creator as a threat to their lives. And so out of fear, they they run and they hide from him. This is a a saddening but clear display of their separation from God. You see, they no longer experience the communion and the intimacy with him that they were created to enjoy. And as the chapter comes to a close, we see that as bad as that was, it wasn't the worst of it. But because of their sin in verses 22 to 24, we see that God removes them from his presence as he sends them east of Eden. Created to be in relationship with God, to to be in his very presence, Adam and Eve are now separated from God. They are removed from his presence as they are sent out east of Eden. So how is this supposed to help us understand the world around us? I think that this passage can help us by showing us that the pain and the brokenness all around us is a direct result of the fall and sin's entrance into the world. that's important that we get all of the problems around us the brokenness inside of us the brokenness around us is a direct result of the fall our problem isn't primarily structural or institutional it's not political it's not social as we look at the the brokenness around us it's it's not the result of the breakdown of the family of racial or social inequality It's not a a lack of education or people's access to to wealth or resources. Now, all of that's not to say that those things aren't important. Christians should be able to speak responsibly and biblically to all of those issues. But Genesis 3 shows us that the fundamental problem, it's not out there. But it's in here. Someone has said, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. We are separated from God. We are alienated from God. And that's what the problem is. That is the the root of all of the brokenness we see around us. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. The first painful but just consequence of the fall was our separation from God. But sin doesn't stop there. Like acid rain, sin affects everything it touches, including our relationships with each other. We see this immediately after God asks Adam, have you eaten of the tree? Who told you you were naked? What does he do? He blames God and Eve in one sentence. That that takes some skill right there. But this separation from each other is seen most clearly in verse 16, when God issues his pronouncement, his judgment on Eve. Before we read this, I just want you to notice how sin will affect every single relationship that she has, especially the ones that she holds most dear. In verse 16, God says to the woman, He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Did you catch those relationships? For Eve, both her children and her husband would be sources of pain and conflict rather than pure enjoyment and peace. In childbirth, what should have been a beautiful and worry-free experience is now tainted with sin. The entire process from, from conception to birth is filled with physical and emotional pain. So if we just look around us, we see the, the, the problems of infertility, miscarriages, birth defects, high-risk pregnancies, postpartum depression, All of these consequences of the fall, as as we see all of those things, we should be screaming out, this isn't the way it's meant to be. But because of sin, because of brokenness, sin has affected every relationship. But it didn't just affect Eve's relationship with her children. It, It affected her relationship with her husband, with Adam. As Tab helpfully showed us a few weeks ago from this very same verse, that sin has affected marriage in at least two ways. We see that Eve's desire will be against Adam. It will be against his leadership. And for Adam, we see that Adam will rule over Eve by force, by strength. Both of these being perversions of God's intended desire for them. Genesis 3 shows us that even marriage, The closest, most intimate relationship that many people will ever have is not immune from the effects of sin. Too often, too often they are greater. Too often we see sin's results greater in that relationship. And it's not meant to be that way. And as we continue reading in Genesis 4, as we're going to see next week, we see that really every relationship is affected by the fall The sibling relationship is affected as as Cain kills Abel. Sorry if I stole your thunder. Sin brings our effect not only on our siblings, but also on our friendships and our neighbors. We see this as Lamech, as as he brags to his wives, yes, his wives, that he's killed a young man for wounding him. And as the story continues, as the chapters go on, we're left with no doubt in our mind that sin has affected every single human relationship. There's no exception. But the truth is that you really didn't need me to take the time to explain any of that. Before I even started talking, I'm sure that that you were already convinced, you're already aware of how we are separated from each other. If your house is anything like mine, then this morning you probably had a front row seat to the consequences of the fall. Here again is, is why we see the need for Genesis chapter three because it helps us make sense of the fall. It helps us make sense of the relation, relational pains and struggles that we all experience, that we all feel. Just think of the, the loneliness, the the guilt, The shame, the hurt, the abuse. Think all of that that you've experienced or maybe that you're experiencing right now. They all find their beginning in the painful consequences of the fall. This doesn't excuse it or make it okay. But it does help us see that things weren't meant to be this way. But because of the fall and sin's corrupting presence, these are all things that we're faced with now. Marriages weren't supposed to be complicated or end in divorce. Children weren't supposed to fight with each other or be stingy with their Legos. Neighbors were supposed to be friends, not enemies. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. We see that sin separated us from our relationship with God. Sin has separated us from our relationship with each other. And lastly, we see that sin has separated us from creation. We see this primarily in God's pronouncement to Adam in verses 17 and 19 as he talks about the the ground being cursed, as he highlights the presence of the thorns and the thistles. Adam and Eve, who were called to exercise dominion, to subdue creation, will now have to carry out this task while dealing with the presence of thorns and thistles. Because of the fall, our work is now a struggle. God tells us by the sweat of our brow, we will eat bread. We'll struggle to find meaning and purpose in our work. And not only that, but because of the fall, we see that creation itself has been cursed. As we live in the world that is plagued by natural disasters, Romans 8 says, the creation has been subjected to futility. Just think of the the destructive volcano eruptions in Hawaii, the earthquakes in Mexico City, the hurricanes and the flooding in Puerto Rico, in Houston, and the Gulf Coast. These were just the ones I could remember from the past past few months. Because of sin, we now live every day in a creation that has been subjected to futility. Genesis 3 paints a very clear picture of the painful but just consequences of the fall. Sin has affected everything. As we look around, as we see the brokenness around us, God tells us why. God tells us why it is that way. He helps us to make sense of the world around us. It's because of the fall. It's because of sin. It's affected everything. Up to this point, if we, if we stopped right here, Genesis 3 would be a lot like Humpty Dumpty. A nursery rhyme ending in despair as there's no solution for his brokenness. Remember, all the king's horses, all the king's men could not but Humpty Dumpty back together again. But by God's grace, this isn't the end of our story. Because lastly, we see God's hope-giving solution in Genesis 3.15. This is one of the most grace-filled verses in your Bibles. If you don't have it underlined, Do so. If you circle things, do so. Because this is grace. This is what stops our story from being Humpty Dumpty. This is what stops our story from being just another tragic story with no hope, with no solution. In verse 15. God speaking his curse to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As God is uttering these words, you can almost see the look on Adam and Eve's face changed, both excited yet confused. Excited because the promise of a child. Confused because they were convinced that they would die. Remember, God hasn't turned to Eve yet and told her she's going to experience pain in childbearing. Adam doesn't know his work will be filled with labor and toil. For all they know, as soon as God is done cursing the serpent, he will turn to them in judgment And they will be goners. So as they hear these words, they're filled with hope. They're not actually going to physically die at that moment. But this text doesn't just just leave us with the promise of a child. But did you catch what God said about this son, this offspring of the woman? this seed of the woman, as as theologians are are apt to call it, the seed of the woman, he's going to deal the death blow to the snake as it crushes his head. We see that this doesn't come without a cost, though. Because as we see the serpent, Satan, will also deal a blow, although not a fatal wound. The snake will bruise his heel. Many commentators have looked at this verse and they've called it the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel. Because as, you, because as you might have guessed by now, we know who the true seed of the woman is. While Eve is first hopeful that Cain is gonna fill this role, Cain will be the offspring who will crush the serpent's head so we're going to see next week, things don't go as planned. As the story continues, we see that Seth is not the appointed one. And while later Lamech is hopeful that Noah will finally crush the head of the serpent, bringing, bringing rest to creation, he falls in the garden just like Adam. But God is faithful and he keeps his promises. Through his covenants with Abraham, with the nation of Israel, with the King David, he continues to keep his promise, to keep this hope and this longing for the seed of the woman, the promised son, the one who will defeat Satan and make everything sad come untrue. And as we turn to the New Testament, we see that all spotlights go center stage as we see Jesus, the Christ. Every New Testament author goes to great lengths to make the connection between Christ and Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, we see that Paul just comes right out and says that Christ is the last Adam. But in every story, especially the Gospels, we see that the four authors are are consistently telling the same story, that Jesus is the second Adam. He is the one who will come to do what the first Adam failed to do. We see this clearly paralleled in Jesus' own temptations in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4. While Satan and the serpent was able to cause Adam to doubt God's goodness, to disobey his word, we see that Jesus perfectly obeyed, resisting Satan's temptation, driving him from his presence as Adam should have done in the garden. And because Jesus lived a perfect life, Obeying in our place, through his death on the cross, he's providing salvation for all who believe. In this fallen world, we have hope. Satan bruised Christ's heel, but Jesus crushed his head. Mm -hmm. It's why we must look to Christ. It's why we must trust in him alone. Because as we look at the problems around us, As we look at the problems in us, we can't solve them on our own. We can't fix them on our own. Just like all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again, you and I cannot pick up the shattered pieces of our lives and put them back together again. We can't restore our relationship with God, with each other, or with creation on our own. Only God is able to do this. Only God can pick up the pieces, put them back together, make them into something much more glorious than they were before. Only God can bring life where there was death. Only God can bring healing and reconciliation where there was hurting and where there was pain. And only God can pick up the pieces of our broken lives, of our broken hearts, and bring salvation, to bring wholeness. We see this as Jesus' life, death, and resurrection restores our relationship with God. What sin had separated, Jesus puts back together. For those who are in Christ, we are, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. As a church, we are the, the temple of God. We had been expelled from God's presence east of Eden, and now we enjoy God's presence with us, right now, because of what Jesus has done. Hebrews 4 tells us that we can boldly approach God. We no longer need to to hide in shame, to hide in guilt or fear, but because of what Christ has done, we can boldly come before God. We do this while waiting a greater future reality. As we look to Revelation 21, where Jesus will return, where heaven will come to earth, where we will be in God's presence, where we will see him face to face and this separation that we experience will be done away with. When we're tempted to question God's goodness, God's love for us, we can look to Jesus, the second Adam, the ultimate display of God's love and care for us. As Tab read earlier from Romans 8, We read that God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things? God has given us everything that we need. He's not withholding anything good from us. So when we are are tempted in this fallen, broken world to question, does God love us? Does God care? We can look to Christ, the second Adam. And know that he is for us. That he is the hope-giving solution that we so desperately need. Right. Jesus has restored our relationship with God. He's, he's reconciled to us to each other. Adam and Eve, because of shame, because of fear, because of guilt, they, they covered themselves. And ever since then, we've been doing so in our relationships with each other always living these buffered lives, never truly being honest with one another. As we're afraid of the, the shame, we're afraid of the, the guilt, if we're afraid if we're honest with one another, that this relationship will be broken. And yet, because of Christ, we can be honest about our struggles. The, way that, the ways that we're suffering, the ways that we're tempted to sin because of the realities in the fallen world, because in Christ, there's no shame There's no guilt. In Christ, the seed of the woman, we have God's hopeful solution for our problem. As we look at the world around us, as we look at the world in us, Genesis 3 helps us see, helps us know why things are the way they are. They're because of the fall, because of sin's brokenness in the world. But by God's grace, we're not left there. We see Christ the hope-giving solution, who's able to restore every relationship that has been separated. We want to close this morning by celebrating the Lord's Supper, a, a tangible reminder of our, re- Lord re- of our restored relationship with